0: Um, because your board is really the the individuals that should be helping drive that mission and vision focus. They're your biggest ambassadors out in your community. Um, You know, when you have a staff of two and a half, we can only be in so many places at once, but having 15 other individuals around the table who know who you are, what you're doing, and why you're doing it, that's a a, a phenomenal tool that I think a lot of organizations don't leverage super strategically.
1: Welcome to the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast, presented to you by Hetra University. If you've landed here, you're probably passionate about how horses help people. This podcast is for anyone who helps others experience the benefits of horses or those who have experienced it themselves. If you're in the equine assisted services industry, we're here to help you. If you're here just to learn more, you're in the right place. Welcome to your community of like-minded people where you will hear stories, education, science, and explanations about how what we do is so much more than just a pony ride. And now, from the Hetrick campus in Gretna, Nebraska, here's your host, occupational
0: therapist and CTRI, Katie Ott.
1: Good morning, Joe. Thanks for hanging out with us today.
0: Yeah, thank you guys for having me.
1: Of course. Well, before we kind of get kicked off, I want to introduce everybody and... Um, kind of get get the ball rolling. So you hear my voice, I'm Katie, and then with me co-hosting today, I have Kaylin. Good morning. Good
2: morning. Kaylin, what do you do for HETRA? I am the Development Director, so I help with all the fundraising, donor relations, and special events. Very good.
1: And this morning, we have Joe Hunter. So Joe, tell us a little bit about you and um, where you work.
0: Yep. So I am the Executive Director of the Papillion Community Foundation, uh, I've been with the foundation a little over three and a half years now, um, but you know every every day is different here, so I'm sure we'll cover all of that here in just a few minutes.
1: Well, today we're going to cover um, a lot of things related to struggles and challenges that I think a lot of nonprofits have um, relating to kind of fundraising and donor cultivation and relations and that kind of thing. Um, so give us a little background on your foundation and kind of what type of nonprofit you are.
0: Yep. So we are a community foundation. So uh, traditionally, community foundations manage money uh, for for donors, for other organizations, and help individuals get their passion projects really accomplished in their communities. While that is the traditional focus of a community foundation, we're what I like to call a little bit more in the, under the working model of a community foundation. So we still do that, but that's not our primary focus. We actually were founded 26 years ago to help continue on the time-honored traditions in our community. So our, the summer festival that we host every year called Papillion Days was really the, the impetus for getting the foundation up and running. And it's something we continue to do this to this day, 26 years later. Um, we also now have under our umbrella our holiday lighting festival called Winter Wonderland. Um, that's been going on in this community for over two decades now as well. And then we also work with uh, several client funds Uh, to help them get their missions accomplished. Uh, Most notably, the uh, organizations Moving Veterans Forward and 50 Mile March are under us, Uh, both veteran-centric organizations, which is near and dear to our core mission and our core values here in Papillion. Uh, But we're kind of just dipping our toe on that side of uh, what a a traditional community foundation would look like by supporting those two organizations.
1: So you guys do, would you say that events then are your primary method of you know fundraising and funding. What would you say you guys do primarily?
0: For sure, um, yes, I would say yes. Events are, are definitely our largest fundraiser, which again kind of strays away from that traditional community foundation model. We're working on having those those client funds come in and enhance that revenue stream as an additional line item in our budget every year
2: for our listeners really quick um that might not be familiar with Papillion how big is Papillion um how large is your organization and then what is your reach are you just Papillion focused or do you help other areas in Omaha
0: Yep. so Papillion itself the city as of right now has about 25,000 people uh directly in the city limits but there's the zoning jurisdiction for the city reaches about 50,000 um our events Papillion Days itself will draw about 40 to 50,000 folks to town over the five days that we host it in the summer. Winter Wonderland, depending on the weather, will normally see between eight and 12,000 people come to our downtown corridor, um, and all of that's executed by a staff of two and a half here. So I have a full-time, I'm full-time, our assistant director is full-time, and then we uh, have a part-time community development coordinator. So there's a lot of moving pieces for the three of us to juggle. Um, but we have great partnerships with the city itself and with our community that make that happen every year. Uh, that being said, we do try and keep as focused on Papillion as we can, because that that's, you know, everyone's home here. That's in our backyard. It's what we were created for. So mm-hmm. um, we're here to help anyone who needs the help. Uh, but at the same time, we we want to make sure that uh, if we can get you here housed and home in Papillion. That's where we'd like you to be. So
1: can you speak a little to kind of sticking to your mission, I guess, as a experienced um, professional in the nonprofit sector? I think that's something that we as nonprofits are always need to be aware of is kind of that mission drift. And there's always more we can do, but how do we stay focused on what's important to us?
0: Yeah, I think uh, COVID for every organization, I think, was a little bit of a, a jolt. You know, what are we doing? How are we doing it? What What is our our impact and our focus? Um Personally, I like to run 100 miles an hour and go in 40 different directions. <laughs> There's a reason, though, I have a board that tells me to sit down and you know slow down, don't run too far, don't run too fast. Once we got through COVID, which was a challenge for us, we sat down and said, OK, we, we really need to look at our strategic plan, look at our mission, our vision, our core values, and, and make sure that we're aligning with what the community needs. Through that process, I think we were able to really better define what our focus is going to be the next five to 10 years looking at the growth that Papillion is going to experience in the surrounding areas as well. um, We really want to be prepared for what that growth is going to bring 10, 15, 20 years from now. And that planning has to start today. So it it takes a very conscious effort. Um, The two things that I use when I'm making decisions just day in and day out is our budget and our strategic plan. And if something doesn't meet both of those guiding tools, then it's likely not going to happen. so, that you know, I think it's important for organizations to have those tools in place. That way, if there is a, a leadership changeover or if some new opportunity comes, comes along, you have to be flexible enough to respond to those opportunities, but you also need to be prepared enough to know when to say no.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think um, we just came back from a conference in Oklahoma not that long ago, and one of the big topics there was strategic planning. And hopefully... Nobody tuned us off. Our listeners are still here <laughs> once they heard the word strategic planning, because I think a lot of people get, you know, intimidated by that. Do you guys have a process that makes it, you know, easier for you and in, in all the years that you guys have been operating or what's your advice on that?
0: Yep. So we kind of scrapped our old strategic plan last November and, and just started from scratch. We said, you know, this, we've had some leadership turnover. We've got some new employees that are coming on board. We we just really need to sit down and, and take a, a, a solid look at who we are internally and reflect on that. So we, we scrapped our old strategic plan and really sat down. And for us, our calendar matters a lot. So, you know, there's only 12 months out of a year and we have events through that whole calendar year. So it's important to look at your time that you have as a staff and as a board to say, okay, how much can we realistically do with event A in June, event B in November? And we added a, a, a C event, a golf tournament in September this year. So as we're growing and expanding, it's important to sit down and say, okay, these get us to keep our, you know, it keeps the lights on, it keeps the doors open, it keeps the staff paid, but what's the actual impact of of those events um, that is just on our bottom line? The board and I identified four key areas that we want to focus on moving forward, education, veteran services, mental health, and then community sustainability. Under each of those categories, we've got some priorities as an organization, what we're going to fund, what we're not going to fund as a grant giving organization, who we're going to work with and who we're not going to work with as a, a shelter for nonprofits and client funds. And then looking at, hey, what what other ways can we expand our business model? So it really um, was a professional deep dive over about a six hour strategic planning session for us that was facilitated to have those hard conversations. Anyone that's going into a strategic planning session, I would highly recommend you bring in an outside facilitator, whether you can find it, a volunteer who's willing to donate their time or a professional who can come in that you can pay. It really helps that everyone is on a neutral ground and you don't have to have someone who's with the organization be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Hey, we're getting off into the weeds or no, that's not a great idea. That's not really what the mission and the vision is for. So it it really, I think, assisted us having that, that individual present. Um, And we did a lot of legwork leading up to that session. I sit down with each one of my board members individually at the end of every year, ask them all the same eight questions, basically, you know, how do you feel we did this year? What could we do better? Where do you see the organization going? And it's a frank conversation. They talk to me and I just listen and write. It's not something where I'm going to provide feedback or jump in and say, oh, no, that's not a great idea. Yeah, that's fantastic. We need to jump on that today Mm -hmm. uh, to start really understanding where everyone's head is at. Because um, your board is really the the individuals that should be helping drive that mission and vision focus. They're your biggest ambassadors out in your community. Um, you know, when you have a staff of two and a half, we can only be in so many places at once. But having 15 other individuals around the table who know who you are, what you're doing, and why you're doing it. That's a, a, a phenomenal tool that I think a lot of organizations don't leverage super strategically.
1: Yeah, that has been popping up a lot in um, a lot of our Kind of Facebook groups and different discussion forums that we have, even for our industry, is that, you know, how do you manage a good board and put together a good board? Because I feel like so many times when very small nonprofits or you know, like centers like ours start, it's you know a handful of people that you were friends with or you know or whatever. And then how do you kind of, evolve. Pr- yeah, prune and grow your board so that right. it's really the best, um, the best team that you can have.
0: Well, and that's, I think, the unique struggle of any nonprofit is we're we're structured to where you don't have one owner. You don't have someone who, you know, income or livelihood depends on the bottom line necessarily, um, like a for-profit business would. Um, being an executive director, I hire and recruit all of my bosses on my board, which is not how that normally works in any <laughs> other role or industry anywhere. So when you're looking at that, you want to make sure you have right people around the table. And that that requires tough conversations sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fortunate and blessed that we have a, a board of working professionals and, you know, really, really engaged community volunteers here at the foundation. But occasionally you, you run into a snag where someone's, you know, really focused on their professional life and they're not putting the time in with the foundation. So you have to sit them down and say, hey, you know, you've made this commitment. We need you to step up.
3: Mm-hmm. Those are not
0: easy conversations to have, but they're necessary um, because you're protecting the organization at the end of the day. Because um, again, those 14, 15, however many individuals you have around your board table, they're the ones that are, are going to continue to drive it after the executive director has gone or the founding member is no longer with the organization. So mm-hmm. it's really important to make sure your talent is solid, um, but that's easier said than done, especially when you're starting out.
1: Right. So obviously you want people on your board that are very committed to your mission and understand it well, and, you know, are also passionate about it. Do you have any other advice for like what types of professionals or, you know, individuals you might want on a board?
0: I really look at my board as groups of personalities. You know, what are the industries? What are the specific things that we as an organization need I think every nonprofit needs a lawyer. I think everyone should have an accountant or a CPA or someone with financial um, just so that someone who can really dive in and know finances and everything. It's good to have people like that who can come in and look at your, your financials and say, Oh yeah, this is right. Or this is wrong. Um, at the end of the day, that's the board's biggest responsibility is making sure that money is managed well and that governance is being done properly. Um, you know, it's up to the staff to execute and follow through on all of that, but the board is the one who's on the line at the end of the day. So making sure that, A, your board's board directors understand the responsibilities that they have is really important up front, and then setting expectations for what they're giving back, whether that's a financial commitment, a time commitment, um, understanding what your meeting schedule is annually, that, that starts your board member off on the right foot before they even sit down at their first board meeting.
2: Right. Do you have board terms? at your organization?
0: We do not currently, but it is a conversation we're having right now. Um, I think it's healthy for any organization to have strategic turnover at the staff level and at the board level so things don't stagnate. At the same time, there is institutional knowledge there that you don't want to lose. So how are we capturing that? without it going out the door every three years, every six years. Um, So that's an ongoing discussion we're having right now. I would recommend any new organization just implement term limits from the beginning, just -hmm. because I think that's a healthy culture to build. Um, It also opens your doors up to more people more frequently, which is always a good thing. Um, But it's not something that we've had since we started here. But again, it's something we're looking at right now.
1: Mm -hmm. So then shifting gears a little bit, how we talked about how your board can help you communicate your mission and help you kind of spread the word about what you're doing and help you out there. In what other ways are you guys communicating your mission and kind of engaging with, you know, potential donors and and fundraisers?
0: You know, I think we're we're fairly unique. Um in the nonprofit world, for us, our events, again, are our, our major fundraisers. So a lot of our donors are normally corporations or corporate sponsors or businesses.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: The way you approach a business is a lot different than the way you approach a donor who's going to give you $100 a month. There's a reason we hired a community development coordinator. It's because we know we need to get better at meeting one-on-one with the constituents here, the local you know populace, getting those 25,000 people to buy into what we're doing. Um, at the same time, those corporate donors are are what keep our doors open right now, by and large. I mean, if I were to run numbers right now, I would say probably 95% of our donations come from a corporate sponsor of some kind. So the strategy for approaching and talking to both of those individuals, categories of individuals is different. A business owner is going to want to want to see an ROI or return on investment. They're going to want to see what your marketing reach is and how many people are you talking to and you know, what, what is my visibility at your event? Whereas someone who's giving you $100 a month may want that that impact story that tugs at the heartstrings. Hey, you know, my $100 is going to support a, a veterans-focused food pantry. What is that doing in the community? How many people does that impact? And, you know, can I take a, a load of groceries to, to John who just got placed in a, you know, a, a homeless shelter and help him get back on his feet? So you have to be adaptable, especially in this role when you have a small team. Um, but my advice to anyone would be don't don't shut the door on a new plan. You have to try things and be innovative. Um, you know we live in a, a world where social media is so prevalent. You have to compete in a void of forty thousand other people on any given day in a Facebook feed, in a Google ad, um, on a radio advertisement. You have to find your way to stand out and really make that matter to folks. Um, and that, that's the easiest way to to approach a business or an individual to get them to come in as a donor
1: mm-hmm, So once you kind of establish that relationship, how do you continue to you know foster that and build that so that they are, you know repeat, you know donors or it's that that relationship is sustainable?
0: Communication, I firmly believe, solves ninety nine percent of problems in the world. so so long as you're communicating with your donors and it can be as simple as a monthly newsletter, Um, We have found that handwritten notes and letters work really well. Granted, that takes up a lot of time. So if you have 15,000 donors that you have to reach out to every month, a handwritten letter may not be an option for them. Um, But finding ways to connect and communicate with your donors to touch base and say, hey, this is what you're doing for us. Um, Again, even if it's as simple as someone giving $5 a month, your goal should always be to get that person to maybe... A year from now, give $25 a month, and then a year after that, give $100 a month. So being really intentional about how you're moving donors up that ladder and what you're targeting communications towards is really, really important. Um, We've found that, again, social media is a big asset of ours, and then using our website and our emailing platform has been huge. Um, but a lot of business organizations and stuff like that, sometimes all they want to do, hey, let's have lunch once a quarter let's just sit down and see where you're at with something. And it's as simple as taking an hour and a half out of your schedule or out of your development team schedule to sit down and meet with those folks. And that's good enough for them Mm because the one thing we can't give back anyone is time. So making sure that you're valuing your donor's time is also hugely important in that process.
1: This episode is sponsored by Freedom Rider. Freedom Rider's mission is to provide safe, top-quality tack, supplies, and resources for riders, horses, instructors, and trainers. Starting in 1996 as a catalog of hard-to-find specialty items for therapeutic riding and driving, this company has grown to include more items for therapeutic riding, hippotherapy, and able-bodied riders of all disciplines. By working with select manufacturers, specialized craftsmen and women, and actually developing their own products based on customer needs. This store carries everything from hard-to-find adaptive tack solutions, saddles all different kinds of reins educational books and curriculums fun equipment like rings bean bags sensory items and so so much more check out freedom Rider and all they have to offer at
2: www.freedomrider.com what's your like your personal preference your favorite way to reach out to your donors like is it that email is it that luncheon is it the letter mm-hmm
0: I prefer sitting face to face with someone because I can connect with them. Uh, that being said, I only have eight to ten work hours in a day, so <laughs> I can't sit down with each individual um, as frequently as I would like. But um, you know that that connection you can't make up for that even with a handwritten note or anything. Um, you know, a phone call helps every now and then. I'm really trying to get our board on board with making phone calls and saying thank you to donors even if it's just you know two or three phone calls a month from each board member, that, that can be 20, 30, 40 people you're hitting up every month that is being touched by your organization, just to say thank you, not to necessarily say, hey, we need more money from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's, that's the hardest part is people always think whenever, you don't want, want to be that persona that when a donor sees you walking towards them, they think that they're didn't, you're gonna come with your hand out and want them to open their wallet. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a relationship. And it's a two way street with that. So don't don't make it transactional, I guess, would be my recommendation to folks.
1: We started doing that um, with one of our campaigns. All of the people who donated, we we split amongst our staff and called them and just like just called them and said, thank you. And you would be just absolutely floored at the number of people that were like just so shocked like oh my gosh thank you for calling you know and then you're talking to so and so and they're like giving you their recipe for banana bread or whatever but they're like well right. so, they're just so happy that you called to say thank you and that
2: personal touch is is really cool and shocked right. that you weren't asking for anything else right but a lot of the times it was like that that's all you wanted to talk about I'm like yeah I just wanted to say thank you and to see how you were doing and mm-hmm. have a great yeah. holiday <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> The hardest part, I think, for folks in our role is that we get so concerned with the dollars and cents, because obviously, I mean, that's what keeps the doors open. Um, But building those healthy, sustainable relationships makes that possible and more feasible day in and day out. So Mm
3: -hmm.
0: it's hard to put dollars and cents to, okay. I spent an hour with, with Mr. Smith today. You know, that could bring in a $50,000 gift 10 years from now Mm -hmm. that you had no idea about, but all it took was you maybe sitting down with them once a month and just saying, Hey, this is where we're at. Some of it's intangible, but you know, that's, that's the glory of human relationships is we don't ever know um, when someone's going to give. We also don't ever know when someone's going to, to leave something to us that that's bigger than, than what we could have ever expected. So making time and approaching every relationship from from a level playing field as to I'm not coming here with an expectation to walk out of this meeting with a $10,000 gift. I just want to get to know someone and and build that relationship from there. I think that's that's where successful development begins and where it ends, to be quite frank with you.
2: Question for you, going back to your board, because I think a lot of organizations of all sizes are starting to realize that you can use your board as a personal touch to help with donors. Um, But what does that look like and at what level?
0: We put a handwritten thank you note on every receipt that we send out. Doesn't matter if it's a $5 gift or a $5,000 gift. Um, But when it comes to involving my board, I look at it from who has relationships with these folks. You know, we, we are a small town, a town of 25,000, so there's a good chance one of my board members knows someone if they're sponsoring an event through their business or if they're coming up to volunteer or something like that. So it, it's really a, a, here's a list of everyone who's given a, given in this past month, you know, who knows who, and that's where we start with. After that, if I have some folks left on that list, it's okay, well, the board president and I are going to take everyone who's a $5,000 and above donor for us. And we're both going to write, I get one side of the thank you card, he gets the other side. Um, and it really trickles down from there. Um, it's also a matter of availability. Board members are volunteers. They're not paid to be on, on boards. So it's also a matter of how much time they have. If I have 200 donors in a month that we have to contact or reach, the staff is probably going to reach out to 90% of those folks, whereas the board's going to take the top 10% mm-hmm. just because, again, the my board members, they're all business owners. We have a few retired folks around that I can bring in and they can write thank you cards all day long. But we also want to make sure that, again, I'm using the, those relationships that the board members have strategically with those folks.
1: Makes sense. This is off topic. I mean, kind of switching gears a little bit because you guys are so event heavy and you talked a little bit about... Um, how your donors are helping you cultivate those sponsorships, the event sponsorships and things. We do one, we do a couple smaller events, but one really big event, you know, gala type event every year. What would you say are kind of the pros and cons to events and how do you balance, like you added a event this year, you know, how do you balance, like, if that was, is going to be a good move or not?
0: Anytime you change something, it's a little nerve wracking. Um, But sometimes you just have to jump off the cliff and give it a shot. Um, The event we added this year is a golf tournament, and we weren't really sure how well it was going to do um, just because there are so many golf tournaments out there. So looking at your event, whether it's a gala, a golf tournament, a summer festival, anything like that, you have to look at what sets you apart and how that relates to your mission. For us, the message behind our golf tournament right now is the the funds raised at this tournament are going to support our grants program and our scholarships program, both of which heavily benefit veterans. We're playing on a golf course that is owned and operated by the military community. We have an honorary speaker who's coming in who's a retired uh, major general with the Air Force. So we're, we're structuring our event to cater to that clientele to help raise those funds. I'm happy to say it's working well so far. The tournament's on the 15th of September, so uh, I'll hold my my final judgment on that. Stay tuned.
3: That. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. Um, but when folks know that you plan good events, especially with our summer festival and our winter festival, they buy in because they're like, we, we see what you're doing in the community every day. So for us, it's a little bit easier. Um, at the same point in time, there's still a challenge there. There's 40 golf tournaments, you know, from... I think the end of March to August, it seems, everyone's doing one. There's a reason for that. They all raise money and they work.
3: Mm-hmm. But
0: how are you setting yourselves apart to compete for those dollars from corporations, from individuals to get them to come out and play um, and to sponsor things? It's challenging. Um, you know, we're, we're moving in with the expectation that this first year is going to be an investment year. We're going to really try and, and start off by investing in the event. It might cost us some money to do that. But moving forward, if we're really strategic and intentional about it, the event itself will grow naturally over time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I really leverage a lot of relationships that I have at a professional level uh, through our area chamber of commerce, uh, through other nonprofit organizations. I'll pick up the phone and call a, a CEO or an ED at another organization and say, "Hey, you guys have been doing this for 25 years. Your golf tournament is so successful. How do you do it?" Mm-hmm. Um, folks are normally more than willing to share. You know the the tips and tricks of the trade there. They're probably not going to show you the financials of how well they do, but um, <laughs> they will at least tell you, hey, this is what I've learned doing this for 10 years. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do.
1: Yeah, what you should not do, I think yeah. is the- <laughs> it is
0: really important. Um, yeah. never want to turn a donor or a sponsor off. So sitting down and, and not being afraid to ask those questions of other professionals in your field is huge. Um, that's an untapped resource that I think a lot of new organizations don't plug into because they're new and they don't know. It's as simple as sending an email making a phone call and introducing yourself and saying hey this is just what i'm trying to do can you help me out and listen to me and meet with me for for 30 minutes so i can pick your brain Mm -hmm. i never say no to those conversations because you never know where they're going to lead you know a good example of that one of our client funds the 50 mile march was a 45 minute phone call um, introduction this gentleman who founded the organization jay morales said hey I have this vision to make this happen. I've really been doing this walk by myself with a few a handful of friends, um, and they just did their fourth annual walk this past weekend, and they raised they were tracking to raise almost three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for their cause. You never know what those phone calls or those meetings are going to going to lead to. So, mm-hmm. uh, give everything a chance again. Approach everything from a level, fair playing field, and and see what happens.
1: Yeah, I really like that you guys. Um, The way you're explaining like your golf event specifically with it being very veteran focused and choosing a space very deliberately and, you know, who's going to present and that kind of thing, I think really does set you apart. And as you know, being in the nonprofit sector, we have this incredible opportunity to. Um, tell stories and really share the the missions that we support that other you know for profit companies and things don't have. So for us, I think choosing something that's a little bit more focused can be really helpful when you're communicating that with donors and people who are attending.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right. It's really hard for a lot of us. because not most nonprofits don't have a good or a service that they can sell. It's not like you walk into Walmart. You know what you're going in there t- to purchase. Right. For us to get funding from an individual or get a volunteer to get involved, you have to pull at what they're passionate about.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, again, you're shouting into that void of 40,000 other things in, in everyone's schedule and in their world. I think COVID really emphasized that for a lot of individuals is where am I spending my time, talent and money? Um, because it, that's limited and it's finite. So you're competing in that realm against everyone else. How do you differentiate yourself and, and share that message? But that's, That's the fun part of the job is how do we really engage folks in our community to make what we what we're also passionate about a reality.
1: Right. So if you had to choose one or the other, would you choose your website or would you choose social media?
0: I would say social media has been more proactive for us. Our website's definitely more of a reactive tool, I think, for folks to go and get information and seek that out. Um, our social media is more of that proactive tool, of drawing new people in and getting them to engage with us. So um, it's definitely a, both tools we underutilize, I think, as an organization right now, and we're aware of that. We're trying to remedy that. Um, you know, we're working, looking to work with some marketing consultants and bring in a marketing firm to help professionalize and bring us up to speed on that. But again, it's hard to sit down and say, okay, we're going to allocate, you know, fifteen percent of the budget next year for marketing. Um, as an organization that's never had to do that before, it's a big leap. And where, if you're putting 15% there, that's 15% that's being taken away from somewhere else. So you have to be strategic and intentional about it, but you also have to be willing to make those, those decisions and take some of those risks, um, which is something as a whole sector, I think we've learned through COVID is something we just have to get comfortable with. Um, nonprofits by and large, I don't think take risk all that often at a high level, Mm -hmm. Uh, not that I'm advising ever, anyone to go and put all of their money on black and you know <laughs> yeah, hope yeah, it's yeah. the best, but um really look at yourself hard and sit down and have those tough conversations and say, Okay, we know what we're missing here. How do we fix it? And we have to stay committed to making sure that we we run with that for a period of time and don't get that cold feet two, three months into a new marketing campaign and just pull out because it's not getting the exact metrics we thought it was. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: I would love for you to talk just a little bit. I know it'll probably be hard, but you you do a festival as your major fundraiser. And I think that's super unique and different. And a lot of people pick like singular day events, um, whereas you do multi-day. Will you just briefly say how many days it is, how long you've been doing at the festival and just kind of what each day consists of or what you what your goal is each day?
0: Yep community. so the Days uh will moving into 2024 we'll be celebrating the 77th year of it. The foundation has it's only sort of been for 26 years but it's a it's again that time honored tradition here in our community. Over that 77 years it's changed. It used to be just a parade and a carnival singular day sort of thing. We run it now for 5 days. Um we start the event with a family fun night for the kiddos. We do a uh, ice cream social that night so free ice cream for the community come down there's food trucks they do a duck pull, so they fill up a giant kitty pool basically with numbered ducks and it's it's kind of like a lottery drawing so if you win if your duck gets pulled you get a, a cut of the pot and everything day number two is when our carnival and our market open so we have over 100 vendors come down to our, our city park here in downtown and they operate that market for the remaining four days And it can range from a food truck to someone who makes custom mugs, cups, or handmade jewelry. So um, we have a carnival that's open all four days as well. That's really a a big piece of where the revenue from the event for us comes from. The carnival sells tickets, they sell wristbands, and we work with them and the city to make sure that it's kept safe and it's kept accessible. Um, But that serves as a large part of the fundraiser for us um, that I don't think a lot of people know about. Hey, when you buy a wristband or you buy a ticket at the, the ticket booth. 20 30% 20 30% of that's coming back to us to impact our mission every every with every purchase. So that's huge for us. There's a fireworks display that we do. There's a car show that one of uh, the local veterans organizations hosts. There's there's a lot of moving pieces to it, but there's a reason why it takes six months to plan. It I mean, it yeah. really is five full days of us. I mean, I, myself and my staff each of us work about 110 hours that week just to pull it off. So it, it's not a, a loose commitment from us at all. But again, that that is what funds our operations every year. So again, the challenge for us is if we're going to be a city of 90,000 by 2050, what does this event look like? Because if we're drawing 100,000 people to town for it, how are we growing and and planning for that now to get ready for that change? So
3: yeah,
0: it's a fun part of the job. um, And I I love every single day of it.
2: I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I want organizations of all sizes to think outside the box, especially when it comes to events. Um, I think a lot of times people think they have to do a golf tournament or they have to do a dinner. And mm-hmm. that's certainly not the case in doing a festival where you have multiple days, but you have each day is something new and different. Like do a car show, do an ice cream day. There's so many different events that you can do that help your mission, but also bring the community in, get excited. And it's not just a reoccurring idea or concept that they've seen a million times before mm-hmm. is really important so I appreciate you talking a little bit about that so
0: yeah and, and don't be afraid to reach out to other organizations you know we can't do what we do without the support of organizations like the junior women's club mm-hmm. uh, area businesses the downtown business association so don't be afraid to collaborate as well you don't have to safeguard the dollars and cents so much that you shut yourself off from the outside world um, don't be afraid to share I think that's that's something as a sector we can do better at as well. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And you never know what organizations you'll partner with that believe in your mission so much that they don't want the dollars. They want to help right. you grow. So they're going to donate their time. I think a lot of people are often scared to ask that question and exactly. kind of widen their scope a little bit to bring more people in. For sure. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll let you go, Joe, but
1: before we do, um, we have a question that we ask every episode and the question is, if you had a time machine, you could go back in time and give yourself some professional advice or your organization, some advice, what would it be and why?
0: I would tell the organization 20 years ago to be comfortable with saving some money, um, I think that when you're new and you're starting up, it's scary to not keep some money in the bank sometimes. Hey, we're so mission focused. We're so mission critical on what we're trying to accomplish that we need to spend everything we've got to make sure that we're we're meeting that and making the largest impact that we can. Mm-hmm. I would tell the organization 20, 25 years ago to don't be afraid to scale back on those expectations because 20 years from now, if you save that a little bit, a little bit of money, not hundreds of thousands of dollars, but maybe $10,000 a year. That's a nest egg that's going to continue to grow and support your mission a hundred years from now. Um, you know, I think that as an organization, we're running ourselves a lot differently. Now we're running it more like a business and less like um, an organization that just has to give away every cent that we receive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really helped us allow, it's allowed us to expand our staff, expand our footprint and extend more services to our community. So Don't be afraid to to, again, sit down and and step back and say, okay, we really want to do this with a hundred percent, maybe 90% is good enough for these first couple of years.
2: That's great advice. And I hope those of our listeners who are just getting started really sit with that question um, and that advice a little bit, because there are a lot of organizations that get started and want to do that hundred percent. And then as they grow and expand, because they're maybe they're not ready, or they don't think that ten years from now they're going to be bigger than they already are. Mm-hmm. And if you start saving and have that, have that plan in place before, huge like you will make such a big right. impact, and it'll be so you'll be so grateful.
0: It's okay to get really good at doing one thing mm-hmm. and being the best you can at that. And that is, I think, the hardest thing for any nonprofit because we all want to run in a hundred directions. Again, that's yeah. why my that's what my board tells me the most is sit down, slow down, yeah, because um, I want to go a hundred different places. Get really good at one thing. Focus on that. Once you're great at that, start adding one, two more things after that, whether that's financially or with events or with your donors or programming. Um, Just take your time. I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. we all can't solve the world's problems on day one.
1: I know we're all out here in the nonprofit sector with our bleeding hearts just (laughs) <laughs> Just wanting to help right. everybody and everything and everyone. And sometimes we need to, in order to help the most people we can, we need to hone it in. And
0: that's, that's <laughs> the hardest part of the job, in my opinion, is is stepping back and saying, okay, can I help everybody today or can I not? Because mm-hmm. that, that passion is what drives us to show up at work every day.
3: Mm-hmm,
1: that's right. Well, Joe, I've so enjoyed our conversation. I think it's fantastic that um, you gave such good advice and I think everyone will get a lot out of it. So... Um, We appreciate you greatly taking time out of your busy schedule.
0: I appreciate you guys making time for me and listening to me drone on for 45 minutes.
1: (laughs) We loved it. We loved it. All right. Well, we'll see you down the road, Joe.
0: Perfect. Thank you, ladies.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode. Until the next one launches, stay connected to our community by joining the Not Just a Pony Ride Facebook group. There, we share exclusive educational content answer your questions, and review new and exciting developments for the EAS community. Don't forget, if you have suggestions for future episode topics or a lead on a great guest that you think our audience would enjoy, click on the link in the show notes or visit us at hetrauniversity.org. This podcast is presented by Hetra University, an educational arm of the Heartland Equine Therapeutic Writing Academy. HETRA University's mission is to provide high-quality educational offerings to our participants and the EAS community. If you'd like to help us work toward our mission, you can make a donation by visiting us online at hetra.org. Again, I can't thank you all enough for helping HETRA change lives one stride at a time.